Well, how delightful to be back at the Glen, and particularly with the Sunflower Saints, <laughs> and the Hoosier Holies, <laughs> and the New York and New Jersey Nephilim, and the Arizona Angels. What a combination. Kingdom is right around the corner. We're laying new planks every day. I would like you to meet a very significant person. I would like you to meet my bride. Sweetheart, this is Jean. She taught me everything I know. So if you don't understand me, ask her. <laughs> she is the mother of my four children. I'm not talking about toddlers or even teenagers. I'm talking about 21, 23, 25, 27. So take a good look at her, gentlemen. <laughs> this is what tender, loving care produces. <laughs> I want to launch a series this morning which I have entitled The Dynamics of Discipleship. The greatest threat to Christianity is not communism. It is not materialism. It is not atheism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, without ever becoming involved in the most significant work on earth. Now, our able artists caught a few of these Christians in action. First of all, we went over to the last Baptist, <laughs> or was it St. John's by the gas station? And we noted a number of vacant-eyed wool gatherers. Now, that's a significant group of saints. They really turn you on. In fact, if you are a pagan, you can hardly wait to become one of those. When they go to church, they throw their mind into neutral. Are they expecting anything? Certainly. They're expecting to get out at 12. <laughs> they put in their appearance. They tip the preacher. They feel they are doing God a favor. How fortunate can he be to have me on his team? <laughs> well, we thought certainly this must be an exception. So we decided to pay a visit to St. Anesthesia. <laughs> and this is what we discovered. A group of sleepy-headed elbow leaners. People who are scarcely ten minutes into the service before they are in the second or third stage of anesthesia. <laughs> These are people who are not excited by the truth. They are embalmed by the truth. Well, we thought we'd give it another go-round. 
so we went over to the Church of the Immaculate Perception. <laughs> and we found a group of cross-legged fingernail checkers. Now, don't laugh, they are extremely crucial individuals because they are very observant. The problem is to get them observing the right thing. They are usually observing the number of tiles on the ceiling or in the rafters, the beams, or on the floor. If we could ever get them into the text, man, they could revolutionize their generation. Well, we finally decided to give it one last try. So we went over to the Foursquare Episcopalian Unigational Synod South of God Bible Church. <laughs> and we found a group of left-handed doodlers. Now, that's enough to blow any preacher's mind. Because in the process of discharging his janitorial duties, not a part of the original job description, he picks up some notes in the pew. He'd watched some people writing during his service, and, you know, that's enough to give a man a coroner. But he discovered that Really, it was a play that somebody was designing for the Kansas City Chiefs. And let's face it, they need a play. <laughs> or, if it were a female bird, it's next week's shopping list. Now, any relation between these birds and the people in your church or community is purely intentional. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Problem? Certainly. But the church will prevail, despite the fact that frequently all you can see is a collection of losers. I believe the church today is facing its greatest challenge. Knowing church history as I do, if you were to stretch all of the ages of church history before me and ask me to pick the age in which I wished to live, I would select this generation. I have been ministering for over 30 years, and never during that period of time have I seen the Holy Spirit at work like he is right now. And I hope you thank God every day that he privileged you 
to live and minister in this generation. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop allowing the devil to sow seeds of discouragement and defeatism in your mind and heart. There's no question we are living in a generation of tremendous plight, and that is not the evaluation of some wild-eyed fundamentalist. That's the evaluation of thinking, perceptive pagan. T.S. Eliot said of our generation, we are the hollow men. Albert Einstein, toward the end of his life, said, we are a generation of improved means and confused goals. Norman Cousins, the distinguished editor of the Saturday Review, Review World, recently wrote an editorial in which he said, and I quote, the American people today are beset by omens and disconnections. Almost for the first time in our history, we are out of balance politically and spiritually. Our perplexities appear to, to outweigh our hopes. Contemporary pedestals are empty. This is the greatest problem with American youth. We live in an age without heroes. People feel they have to expect the worst just to survive the next surprise. And God called you and make the minister for that generation. How exciting can you get? I hope you never take it for granted. And yet, in the face of that kind of a challenge, I find an incredible number of Christians who are immobilized who are hungry, in fact, in some cases, who are starving for authentic Christianity. Christians are ill-equipped to meet the challenge of our time. Jesus Christ is the answer. The only way to change a society is to change the people within that society. And the only person who can bring about supernatural change in human experience is Jesus Christ. Far more than a historical figure, Jesus Christ is contemporary. But I find a most encouraging note. I find an increasing number of laymen and pastors who are becoming aware that something is wrong. Something is lacking. I find laymen who are tired of playing church, who are convinced there must be something more to the Christian life than what I am experiencing. I spoke recently at a conference of pastors. There were almost 1,200 pastors present, and I have never found a greater receptivity 
to a presentation I gave on discipleship. Pastors who are aware that often their laymen are pouring them into a mold to which God never called them. God called them to a ministry of equipping saints for their work of ministry, a ministry of multiplication. And I think the greatest need of the contemporary church is an understanding of discipleship, an involvement in the disciple-making process. Let me give you my testimony. It all began for me in 1946. I was sitting in a classroom, and a Christian professor made a statement that jarred me. In fact, it changed the course of my life. He said, gentlemen, the Christian life is the life of Christ, reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, master the master's life. That year I began a study which has continued to this day. I devote at least one entire month every year in my Bible study program, and now two months, to a study of one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In an attempt to find out what is it that the Holy Spirit wants to reproduce in my life? Wherever I go in conference ministry, people ask me, uh, you know, what, what are the marks of the Christian life? Well, my friend, don't listen to the average preacher. That may not help you at all. I would suggest you drench yourself in the gospel. If you want to find out what it is that the Holy Spirit has as his goal for your life, saturate yourself with the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to share with you some of the results, hopefully, to launch you on a similar study. For if I should see you 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, if our Lord should tarry, and you began that study this year, you would rise up and call me blessed in every succeeding generation. This is a study with no regret. But I happen to be convinced as an educator that the process is much more important than the product. And I could share with you all of my discoveries. And all you would have is crammed notebooks. But you wouldn't necessarily have changed lives. It ever occur to you how many times Jesus Christ asked people questions, my wife and I, on our way up from Dallas? We're listening to the gospel by Mark on tape, and we were over and over impressed by how many times Jesus said, to whom do men say that I am? Well, what in the world did he ask that for? You think he's asking for information? The omniscient Christ 
And man, they click it off, they got it down, and he says, hey, good. How about you? What do you say? Well, that's a good question, Lord. <laughs> See, because one statement by your disciples are worth 400 statements by you. Now, I want to ask and answer some basic questions during these hours together, but I'd also like to share with you my objectives so you know where we're going, in case we should arrive. <laughs> Number one, this series is designed for you. It's got your name written all over it. And if during the course of these messages you gain the impression that I am talking to you, you are exactly correct. And I don't want any conviction by proxy. <laughs> I was preaching in Mount Hermon some years ago and a lady came up to me after the meeting. She said, you know, I hate to hear you preach. Well, I said, lady, my sympathies are with you. <laughs> I said, I don't think you understand. Every time I hear you preach, I get a sore side. I said, that's interesting. I've heard of people developing a sore head, but, you know, how does your side become sore? She said, would you believe it? Every single time I have heard you preach, I've been sitting next to my husband, and he gets conviction by proxy, and he goes... <laughs> and now I'm going to watch. I'm a very observant individual. If I see some of you saying, wife, just what you need, I'm going to blow the whistle on you. If I hear some of you biggie disciples saying, boy, I'm sure glad the disciples are here, just what they need, then we're going to call you out of bounds, or you will register tilt. Secondly, this series is designed for you to disciple others. And I want you to note that the order is significant. First, you. First, you. First, you. Don't worry about the people back in Kansas. We'll change the whole state. What we got here, if we ever get you turned on. Your problem is not the people back in Kansas. Your problem is the people here. We change you. You're going to become a change element. Kansas, New Jersey, Indiana, etc. See, there are two strands to disciple-making that are often overlooked. First, I am being disciple. And secondly, I am discipling others. And the moment you cease to be disciple, then you have nothing with which to disciple others. You forfeited the role. More about that in a moment. First question we want to ask and answer today is, what is a disciple? Now, how basic can you get? 
There's more confusion per square inch in the realm of discipleship than in any area I know. For your information, this is the in thing now. When Naz first started in business, discipleship, what is that? Discipleship, well, I had one, but the wheels fell off. <laughs> it was like talking a foreign language. I can still remember, you know, deciding to offer a course at the seminary, you know, and submitted it to the committee. You know, we need one of these? <laughs> but you watch. Just, you know, keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open in the literature. Everywhere you go, everybody's talking about it. You'll meet in a conference in a few weeks. Discipleship. First question I'm going to ask them, what are we talking about? To paraphrase a Negro spiritual, everybody talking about discipleship ain't discipling. In fact, by the time you get through this series, I hope seriously that you wonder if you are a disciple. That will be a healthy response. One of the problems is that most of us have an extremely superficial view of discipleship. And I want to blow your minds as I blow mine. My wife and I were talking again this morning. Every time I get down to study this subject, I feel like I'm a babe in the woods. And I'm starting my 30th year in the program I outlined for you a moment ago. Oh, my friends, we really don't know a whole lot on the subject. But what a disciple is will determine what a disciple does. So I'm going to give you some yardsticks by which to measure not only whether you are a discipler, but also whether you are a disciple. Number one, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. At that season, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and understanding. That's a great source of comfort to me. And didst reveal them unto babes. Yea, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Neither does any know the Father except the Son, and he whom, to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that are labor, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now notice, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The meaning of the word, mathetes, that's the Greek word for disciple, is learner. That means that a disciple always has the characteristic of teachability. Do you?
We have some interesting reactions at seminary. Many times when I'm tempted to ask a student, uh, why did you come to seminary? Now, did you come here to educate us? I mean, you know, if you did, we didn't get the message. We should discuss this. I want to say something of real encouragement for some of you dear people, or some of you I've talked to already that haven't been in faith a year. And you shot through with inferiority feelings, you know me, I'm just a little old Christian. <laughs> and all these giants running around in the land. You know what I would rather have? I kid you not. It's on the basis of a lot of experience. I'd rather have a person who did not know schmatz. That's a Hebrew term. <laughs> but it was teachable than people who have all the answers but are not learning. How about you? Notice, I'm not asking, did you learn? I'm asking you, are you learning? See, as long as you live, you learn. And as long as you learn, you live. And if you stop studying and learning today, you stop discipling tomorrow. Our goal both as individuals and as disciple-makers, is to perpetuate the learning process. And this is what bothers me about a lot of courses we offer for people. Because we are giving them an erroneous impression. You come into this course, and when you get through with this course, man, you'll know how to win souls. Oh, come on. That's an ambitious goal. Some of us are still in the process of learning that. Hopefully, you're going to be down the road. But you won't have a ride. You see, as I shared with you this little picture, that's the problem with the church. Those of you pastors here, think this through. Those of you who are on the boards of local churches who are responsible for what's going on there, think this through. The church, biblically conceived, is a school. It's a place where Christians are equipped, trained. It's not a place to come and be entertained. It's not a place to come and watch a pro do his thing and give him a hand and shake his hand at the door and say, My, that was a wonderful sermon. <laughs> Why, it's like listening to Paul. I'll tell him that. Some of these guys believe that. It's a place where you come to be equipped. But watch around in your church. People take notes there? Say, what? <laughs> you know, and I have an aunt say to me, uh, hey, Prof, how long work can I get next to my pastor? I'd say, sit in the front row and take notes. Now, you better have a medical friend close at hand. <laughs> Ask him a question going out the door. Ask him to have lunch with him this week. You'd like to discuss that further. See how ridiculous can you get? 
A learner is a person who never stops studying. And your task as a disciple maker is to provoke, not paralyze thinking. <laughs> and I can spot a good disciple maker a mile away. He always has a liberal supply of itching powder. He's dusting people with it. See, he's not unloading his truck with the hamburger and fan treatment. You know, sit down, man. Put the hamburger on, get the fan behind it. The guy gets it all over the front of his face. Did it ever occur to you that the personification of truth was never hung up over the fact that they didn't know everything? He said, I got a lot of things to share with you, but you're not able to bear it now, but that's no problem to me, because when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. Friend, you don't have to tell your disciples everything you know now. You know, save a little for the next session. I had a professor who made a profound impact on my life. I used to go by his home early in the morning. I worked in the dining hall. I'd go by about 5.30, and I'd look up. I knew where his study was, and there the light be on. I'd watch him pouring over his books. I'd take advantage of the evening hours at the library, come by in the evening, 10.30, 11 o'clock, there he'd be pouring over his book. I said, good night. This guy knows more than I would ever know. And he keeps studying. One day he invited me over to his home for lunch, and after lunch we went into the living room to sit down. I said, Doctor, would you mind if I ask you a question? He said, of course not. He said, what is it that keeps you studying? You never stop studying. And I'm honest, my friends, I would rather listen to this professor unprepared than the average one I've had prepared to the hill. And he jarred me with a statement. I realized later it was the words of another, but they had become his own. He said, son, I'd rather have my students drink from a running stream than from a stagnant pool. By the way, from what will your disciples drink when you go back home to continue this ministry? A running stream or a stagnant pool? Learning is changing. It's changing your thinking. It's changing your feeling. It's changing your actions. You have an informational change. You have an attitudinal change. You have a behavioral change. And the amazing thing is that the church committed to the greatest of change. Supernatural change is frequently said in concrete. See, their motto is, we don't change. Well, expressed at the beginning of the service. As it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, world without end. Well, I can tell that's too convicting. Let's move on. <laughs> first, first, the disciple is the learner. Are you... Secondly, a discipler is a disciple is a follower. A follower. And put two passages of scripture here, you know them from memory. Mark 2:14.
and 3.14. Chapter 2 and verse 14, you have a good illustration. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of Tall, that is, at the tax collector's booth. And he said unto him, Follow me! And he dropped his cash register and followed him. Chapter 3, verse 14. And he appointed twelve, Jesus did, that they might be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. Notice the order. The with him principle. A disciple is one who follows or imitates the life and teaching of another. That's why you have the disciples of Moses, the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John. It's used in many ways. And the Apostle Paul made a statement that I will never forget. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you ever recoil from that? I can still remember the first time I heard that verse. I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Man, I'd never say that. Well, really, it makes very little difference whether you say it or not. That's exactly what's happening. People are following you. The question is, are you following Christ? If not, you're leading them down a dead-end street. Because sure enough, they're going to follow you. One of the basic concepts in education is what we call modeling. Uh, Dr. Bandura of Stanford University has done the most extensive research in this area and has shown that the greatest means of communication is through modeling. Not what you say, but what you are. Are you a parent? And you got an illustration. What bugs you most about your kids? I'll tell you, they remind you so much of yourself. Oh, why are you like that, son? Because you're my father. <laughs> and that's the problem with being a parent. You have to live with your product. Two passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 12 and 15. Now I got a great verse of scripture for some of you youngins. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Here's little old timid Timothy. Out on the assignment. And all these Super saints running around loose. And he's the pastor. And you can almost see it. It's in Paul. You know, I'll never make it. Man only shave once a week. <laughs> and that not by necessity. <laughs> Verse 12. 
Well, Paul galvanizes him, and I'd like to galvanize you with this, you young person, you person just barely into faith, you person under 30. Let no man despise your youth. Stop feeling sorry for yourself that you're young. But be thou an example to them that believe. How? Oh, in word. And that's not talking about talking. That's talking about living. Be an example in your lifestyle, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. So you want to get leverage with older people? It's very simple. Just outlive them qualitatively. Model before older people what you want them to be. And then verse 15. Be diligent in these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Now notice that thy progress, underline that, may be manifest unto all. That's the key. He's not talking about a perfect person. He's talking about a progressing person. He's not talking about a person who has arrived. He's talking about a person who is in route. But it's obvious by observing their life, this person is taking giant steps. In other words, modeling involves the component of consistency, or what we speak of technically as congruence. That is that you say one thing and that you act exactly in accordance with what you say. See, that's why Jesus Christ was such a great communicator. Nothing that he did ever contradicted what he said. These were perfectly congruent. And by the way, we're not talking about a person with problems. Every now and then I have somebody say to me, well, you know, I don't know if I can get into any of this discipleship business, especially, you know, Developing others in this because, man, I, you know, I got so many problems. I said, welcome to the club. So what, is, what else is new? And by the way, that's another problem. I just like to drop in your being passing by. And as some of us are projecting the wrong image of Christianity, the church is not a collection of perfect people. It's a collection of progressing people. Every now and then somebody asks me to recommend a church. I said, what kind of a church are you looking for? They give me the specifications. They say, good night, friend. You're looking for a perfect church. If you find it, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> you got people at your church? Oh, yeah, you got people. Seventeen of them. <laughs> then you got problems. Wherever you have people. You have problems. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but our Lord said to Peter, Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith won't fail. But I want you to know that after you go through this experience, after you're converted, after you're turned around 180 degrees, I want you to strengthen your brethren. You mean on the basis of failure? That's exactly what I mean. 
Because every now and then I hear a layman say to me, well, yeah, I I enjoy his ministry. I, I just wish he'd tell us that he blew it once. So I could identify with him. Because somehow my life doesn't come out the way his does. You know, I got a short fuse. Man in Indianapolis taught me a very important lesson a number of years ago. This man was extremely effective in not only leading people to Christ, but building them up in the faith. And we had breakfast one morning, and I was picking his brain. And I said to him, uh, what, what have you learned through these years? Well, he said, a number of things. I said, well, share some of them with me. Well, he said, one of the first things I do after I lead a person to Christ is suggest that we have lunch together this week. Wednesday be good? Yeah, fine, great, let's get together. So we get together for lunch, and I say, how's it going? And, oh, boy, wonderful. <laughs> great to know Jesus. What? Sin's forgiven. Good. Have any problems? Oh, man, though. That's tremendous. Good. Would you mind if I shared one of my problems with you? You have a problem? <laughs> you, you led me to Christ. <clears throat> oh, no, 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 that's all right. And he says, right from the start, I communicate to him that a Christian is not a person without problems. He is a person who has the problem solver living with him. Because what happens with a disciple when he blows it? Well, it depends how you handled it before that. If you've given them the impression that, man, now you've come to Christ and solved all your problems, well, now that he's got one, he's not about to show you. He'll lose face. And besides, you led me to Christ, and I want to let you down. Have one of your products fail. Because then you wouldn't be the great big success you are now. Are you a pace setter? This is a challenge to me. I've got older kids. And I've spent some fascinating times with them. Particularly in recent months, we've had a lot of time together. I've married my gal, and, and my son is in a disciple-making ministry on a university campus. And we've had some beautiful times, and I kid you not, this has really gotten to me. Because I am finding over and over again that my kids are stretching me. They got my back to the wall. And by the way, that's a good thing for you to learn involved in the navigators. You know, in the early stages of the organization, we used to talk a lot about father, son, grandson, all of this. And I think you understand what we're talking about, but there's a danger in that. And the danger is that you begin to think that because I'm your father, I led you to Christ, you can't go beyond me. That is not true. Your disciples can outstretch you and outstrip you. The question you need to ask yourself is, is that taking place? Am I limiting my disciples by my limitations? 
Or am I turning them loose in a process that conceivably may take them further than me and they begin to challenge me in terms of my faith? Well, there's a third mark, and that is a disciple is a reproducer. Now I'll give you two passages of scripture that I'm going to look at in detail tonight. So I'll just give them to you now for your notes. We'll come back to them. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Our Lord said, I want you to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. By the way, one of them is to make disciples. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things that you've received, Timothy, I want you to make a deposit in the life of others. And that's a good thing to nail right in the center of your head. And that is, discipleship is never an end in itself. It is always a means to an end. God is not building into your life to end the process there. He's building into your life in order to multiply through your life. And that, again, is the problem in our churches. We're leading people to Christ, but they're dead ends. They're not live ends. They're not reproducers. I've taken a survey in recent years, and I've discovered in the average evangelical church, you cannot find 10% who are consistently leading people to Jesus Christ. Much less building them up in the faith. A lot of Christians are scared to death, paralyzed, even at the thought of sharing their faith. One man said to me, what in the world would I say? What happened to you? Oh, man, hold on. Tell them about it. Oh. See, a true disciple is a discipler, disciple builder. He is an infectious individual. He is a carrier of the real disease. <laughs> See, but you can't give anybody a disease unless you got it. Now we use a lot in our movement, in our group, training individuals. But I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to train an individual? I want to give you my definition. I'm not asking you to buy it. just asking you to think about it. When have you trained an individual? I believe you have not trained an individual until you have equipped him to do for others what you did for him. Run it by again. You have not trained an individual until you have equipped him to do for others what you have done for him. Do you teach him how to lead somebody to Christ? That's not training. Until he can teach someone else how to lead someone to Christ. 
I've had, I think, six courses in the personal evangelism in my education, and not a one of them has done a blessed thing for me. I remember one course I had. We had a list of verses to memorize, just a gob of them. And then we had a list of excuses to memorize. And then they sent us into Chicago to Union Station to do personal work. And the first bird I sat on next to brought up an excuse that wasn't on that list. (laughs) And I was hung. Let me give you something. There are four primary phases to developing reproducers. First of all, there is the telling phase. And let's face it, if training were telling, most of our disciples would be brilliant. That's basic, but it doesn't end there. Next thing is showing. I not only need to hear it, I need to see it. And let me just add one interesting thing for you that the NAVs have picked up and I think are doing a great job on. Two things you need to do when you want to tell a person something, ideally. First of all, put it in written form, if you can. And secondly, put it on a tape. Why is that important? That is important educationally because no one, no one, no one can hear one presentation and get everything that you need to secure. That's why sermons are often the biggest waste of time. This dear brother spends 30, I had a guy tells me, tell me he's been averaging 35 hours a week on an expository message. I mean, it's fantastic teaching of the Word of God. And the people are lapping it up like crazy. I said, aren't you putting it in writing? Ah. Don't you put this on tape? Ah. Why is it some people are coming and taping it? Because they said they're not getting as much out of it as they'd like. So well, why don't you swipe one of them and reproduce it? See, Marshall McLuhan came to the conclusion in his recent research that if you take any amount of material and repeat it three times to an individual within a 24-hour period, the possibilities of retention are fantastic. I had an otologist, an ear surgeon in our community, started this years ago before this stuff was being distributed. He'd ride around, get tapes from where they were, where I was ministering the word. He'd get them, put them in his car on a little tape recorder he had on his way to the hospital, to the office home. He'd play those things. He'd play them 10, 15, 20 times. He said to me one day, you know, Hendricks, I'm beginning to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> now, he, he wasn't being rude. He's being very insightful. So after a while, you know, boy, he got this thing so in him, he could quote me better than I could quote myself. One day he made a statement. I said, man, Trevor, it's fantastic. Let me write it down. (laughs) He said, I got it from you. (laughs) 
prophecies, but what do we do in our teacher training in our churches? Well, come next week for another exciting teacher training session, and we're going to have chapter 11 today. What's in chapter 11? Storytelling. We proceed to read back to them what they have already read. Jesus told stories. All great teachers told stories. There are five great points. Grind his baby out. Any questions? Who in the world would have a question? Come back next week for another exciting teacher training session. Anybody ever seen a good story? Man, they wouldn't know one if they heard one. That isn't where it ends. The last two are the doing stages. Ideally, it needs to be broken down into two parts. First of all, you need to do it under a controlled situation. That is, where you can fall flat on your face without losing face. And secondly, it needs to be done in a real-life situation. And only then can you say this person is trained. That is, he's capable of reproducing. Now, you ought to learn that from the cults. The cults in America are the master trainers. I talked to a guy with IBM some time ago who was in a research department, he said, we are studying more and more of the cults to find out how to communicate. That's right. I was home recovering from surgery some years ago, and Sunday morning, you know, a knock at the door, and I hear these two nicely dressed guys with a little phonograph record. Got the picture? Don't have them in your community? Well, they'll be around. <laughs> And I thought to myself, hey, how sharp can you get? So what do you mean you're at the last Methodist? You're not there. See, and they know. It's a beautiful time. So I said, can we come in? Sure, come on in. They didn't know me from Adam. So in the course of the conversation, they would say occasionally when I press them on something, well, that's in the Greek. He said, the what? <laughs> the Greek. I said, well, what's the Greek got to do with it? Well, I said, Mr. Hendricks, apparently you don't know very much about the Bible, but... <laughs> New Testament was written in Greek. Oh, I said, that's interesting. So do you study Greek? Well, it's part of our training program. I said, great. So I reached over and got my Greek New Testament and handed it to him. I said, read it to me. Well, I'd have given anything for a videotape. You know? <laughs> and the older guy tried to bail the younger guy out. I wouldn't let him go. And I said, uh, let me show you. And I took the Greek New Testament and read it to him. I said, see, it doesn't say that. And furthermore, it doesn't mean that. Well, they made short end of the conversation and took off. Where'd they go? Next door? Uh-uh, they're too smart for that. They went down the street in a parked car. I watched them. They were down there for about an hour. You know what was happening down there? Some older guy was telling his younger guy how to keep out of that kind of a rhubarb next time. <laughs> And after he got through, they went back to my next-door neighbor. Monday morning, I said to him, Hey, Jim, which one talked? He said, The younger one, of course. He's the one in training. And when he get that guy to the place where he can carry on in his own and reproduce in the life of somebody else, they give him a training and multiply the process. I used to teach homiletics in seminary. The seminary thought better of this. What an exciting task. You know, I used to have these young kids come in, boy, and <laughs> learn how to preach, you know. 
And he'd come into class and say, all right, now next week I want you to come with an illustration. Get any illustration, one point, you know, bring it, I'll call on you. So he'll sit there hiding like this. And he said, you, you want who, me? You. Guy comes up, grabs this thing like it's going to go out the window. Bats his eye, starts into it, and good night, prof, I forgot the punchline. Said, uh... Well, let me sit down. No, you can't sit down. Anybody here want him to sit down? Nobody wants him to sit down. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I got it. And he gives a punchline. And he sits down, little Cheshire's smile breaks out on his face. The students just explode in spontaneous applause. Tears rolling down his face. I say, hey, man, the first time you've ever talked? <laughs> right, bro. <laughs> first time. <laughs> Man, that's beautiful. See, the problem is that some of us, you see us in terms of what we are now. You should have heard us when we first started. Well, maybe it's better you didn't. (laughs) How do you learn to preach? By preaching. How do you learn to do personal evangelism? By doing personal evangelism. How do you learn to study the Bible? Not by listening to prose teach it but by getting your nose in it, by hitting your head against the wall, by coming up with all kinds of questions. Good. What do you do now? See, I've never yet heard of a correspondence course in swimming. (laughs) Because how do you learn to swim? Well, you don't learn to swim by reading the books about swimming or even watching the pros go up and down in the pool. You learn to swim by diving in splashing away like crazy until you finally begin to get some coordination into the strut, into your legs. And that's what discipleship is all about. Now, listen carefully. A disciple is a learner. Therefore, perpetuate the learning process. A discipler is a follower. Therefore, make sure you provide an adequate model. A discipler is a reproducer. Therefore, be careful what you build into his life because the product's going to be around for a long time. Dear Father, We pray that you will do what we cannot do. We can only bring truth to the ears of men. You must take it to the heart. Father, as the Savior said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And we pray that you will open our ears and that you will open our hearts, that as your word falls, into the soil of our soul. It may fall into good and prepared soil and bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100. Grant it for Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.